0: You're listening to Inside Time. Journalism. Analysis. Insight. Delivered to you daily. Why Allergy Seasons Are Getting Worse by Jamie Ducharme If you've been itchy, congested, and sneezy for months, you're not alone. This year's spring allergy season started early, broke pollen count records in some parts of the country, and is still coming strong in many areas. Unfortunately, this year is unlikely to be a fluke. While pollen counts vary from year to year, recent trends suggest allergy seasons are, in general, getting longer and worse, says Dr. Christine Vonage Charonkarn, an assistant professor at Emory University School of Medicine who specializes in allergies and immunology. Patients started filling her office early this year, around the beginning of March, and, she says, the trend will most likely continue. Here's why and how to prepare yourself for future intense allergy seasons. Why Allergy Seasons Are Getting Worse Climate change plays a big part. We've known for a long time that higher carbon dioxide levels and turning up the temperature on plants in very controlled environments makes them produce a lot more pollen and start that pollen season earlier, says William Anderegg, an associate professor in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Utah, who researches how climate change affects nature. Now, that's happening at scale. Anderegg's research suggests that from 1990 to 2018, North American pollen concentrations rose by about 20%, with allergy seasons starting about 20 days earlier and dragging on more than an extra week by the end of that time period. The effect is happening across the U.S., but parts of the Southeast and Midwest are particular hotspots, he says. Climate change isn't something in distant decades or other countries – It's with us here, in every breath we take, in the spring, Anderegg says. How bad allergy seasons affect your health. Bad allergy seasons lead to bad allergy symptoms, itchy eyes, congestion, sneezing, fatigue, rashes, and so on. In addition to being unpleasant, these symptoms can make it hard to sleep and may negatively affect work or school performance, says Dr. Michelle Pham, an allergist and immunologist at UCSF Health. If allergies linger and remain untreated, they can also contribute to complications, says Dr. Caroline Sokol, a physician in Massachusetts General Hospital's Allergy and Clinical Immunology Unit. The longer you have uncontrolled inflammation, the more likely you are to have side effects, Sokol says. For example, when you're chronically congested, fluid and mucus can't drain properly. If a virus or bacteria gets into that fluid, it can lead to a sinus or ear infection. With viruses like COVID-19, influenza, RSV, and others spreading widely this year, doctors have seen an uptick in ear infections among both kids and adults, well and good reports. Persistent inflammation in the sinuses and nose can also increase your risk of contracting other respiratory infections, FAM says. Allergens like dust and pollen can also exacerbate asthma symptoms such as wheezing and coughing, Pham says. While most people manage their asthma without serious issues, asthma attacks can be severe or even fatal in rare cases if not treated properly. Allergy-triggered asthma attacks may require more intensive treatments such as steroidal medications or hospitalization, Vonage Chironkarn says. How to Handle Worsening Allergy Seasons Get ready to medicate. People who maybe were able to get away with not treating anything or taking one week of an antihistamine are now going to be stuck with a few weeks or months of medications, Sokol predicts. Vonage Choronkaran suggests planning ahead now for the fall allergy season and for next year's spring season, as she's seen an increase in patients who need prolonged treatment to keep up with the worsening pollen seasons. If you're prone to fall allergies, start taking medications in August to ward off symptoms before they start, she recommends. For the spring, start proactively treating around Valentine's Day. If you start it once you're symptomatic, we're a little behind the eight ball, she says. Prevention is always easier. If you're already symptomatic, you may need something stronger than an oral drug. Fam says you're likely to see better results with targeted therapies applied directly to the area that's bothering you, such as a nasal spray, eye drops, inhaler, or skin cream, depending on your specific symptoms. If your symptoms are really bothersome, You may want to see a doctor who can prescribe stronger medication or assess whether something else is going on. Some people with allergy-like symptoms actually have non-allergic rhinitis, a condition that can be triggered by changes in weather or irritants in the air, Sokol says. If you have allergies that aren't responding to standard medications, you may be a candidate for immunotherapy or allergy shots. Patients undergoing this treatment receive numerous injections that contain small amounts of their allergen and the goal is for them to become desensitized to it over time. Immunotherapy is the only thing that changes your immune response to allergens, Pham says. She's already seen an uptick in the number of patients starting new immunotherapy regimens, a trend that she says is likely to continue as allergy seasons continue to worsen. This Company Could Be Crucial to Biden's EV Charger Agenda by Alejandro de la Garza In the wake of federal mandates to phase out gasoline-powered cars, fast chargers for electric vehicles, EVs, are quickly becoming some of the most crucial infrastructure for the U.S. transition away from fossil fuels. And one of the most important manufacturers in that space is an Australian company that few people outside the world of clean tech have heard of. Tritium a publicly-held company based in Brisbane has about 6,000 fast chargers deployed in the U.S., according to the company's data. That's less than Tesla, the 500-pound gorilla in the EV charging world, which has a network of nearly 7,000 fast chargers around the country and a factory in Buffalo, New York, to keep churning out more. But while Tesla recently started opening a few of its chargers to all EV owners and plans to make thousands more universally usable by 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 the end of 2024, most Tesla chargers still only work for the company's own vehicles. That leaves Tritium holding about 30% of the US market for universal EV chargers, the largest share of any company. It also has the largest US-based factory capacity to build those universal chargers, which will be crucial to picking up lucrative contracts as part of a new $5 billion federal push to build out EV fast chargers. That effort, introduced under the 2021 Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, stipulates that the federally funded fast chargers must be assembled in the United States. Tritium's chargers are largely marketed under other brand names, a fact that likely accounts for some of the charging giant's lack of name recognition. When companies like Shell and ChargePoint build fast charging infrastructure, they often buy the chargers from Tritium. Tritium's branding is often visible on the upper part of these charging units. Are you familiar with Intel Inside, says Mike Calise, president of the company's Americas division, where Tritium on top. Some of the most ballyhooed new ballyhooed new pushes into EV charging in recent months have relied on Tritium equipment. Tritium is supplying equipment for BP's push into electric vehicle charging, which involves BP building out airport fast charger hubs for car rental giant Hertz's transition into electric vehicles. Tritium is also the manufacturer behind rideshare company Revel's ambitions to build out more than 160 fast charger stalls in New York City by the end of 2023 the charger company has also developed close ties to the Biden administration kelly says the company was involved in drafting transportation department charger standards after the passage of the infrastructure law in november 2021 which included the 5 billion dollar program for fast charging along highways known as the national electric vehicle infrastructure nevi formula program The administration also gave Tritium top billing at a February 2022 White House event on electrifying transportation, touting the company's plan to open a factory in Lebanon, Tennessee, capable of rolling out 30,000 fast chargers a year. The manufacturing facility Tritium announced today is more than just great news for Tennessee, President Joe Biden said at the time, standing next to a Tritium charger. This is great news for workers across the country, for an economy, and frankly, for the planet. The facility opened in August of that year. There's good reason for the president to lavish such attention on the Australian manufacturer. U.S. built green infrastructure is part of the narrative that Biden is selling to the American people, and Tritium was the kind of story they wanted to highlight. Tritium CEO Jane Hunter says the company was deciding whether to build a factory in Europe or in the U.S. before the passage of the 2021 infrastructure law, but ultimately went with the Tennessee location after the bill's funding passed. We probably couldn't have been more in the sweet spot of what what President Biden was hoping to drive with that strategy, says Hunter. And to a certain extent, The administration's goal of electrifying American transportation hinges on direct current, DC fast chargers like those tritium cells. They're big, complicated electrical installations, not to be confused with a more run-of-the-mill level two charger someone might install in their garage. Those level two chargers may be convenient for homeowners, but they also take a few hours to charge up an EV. That's useful for charging during the workday or overnight, but there are a lot of situations where slow charging charging doesn't cut it, like on long road trips or for anyone who doesn't have their own driveway or parking spot that has a personal EV charging port. The U.S. needs plentiful infrastructure that resembles the current network of gas stations but for electricity, a place where drivers can stop in, power up a car in a matter of minutes, and be on their way. The system also has to be far easier to navigate than the current hodgepodge of EV charging networks, which is plagued by broken chargers and time-wasting systems requiring customers to load money on network-specific apps to pay for charging. The new infrastructure isn't cheap, though. The costs for installing a DC charger car run from $28,000 to close to $140,000, according to the U.S. Department of Energy. There's also a chicken-and-egg problem for companies that might be interested in building it. They need assurance that there will be enough EVs to use their DC fast chargers, so they won't lose money, but a lot of people may be holding back on switching to EVs without the existence of a reliable extensive network. Of fast chargers. The government is trying to jumpstart that adoption cycle, and Tritium, for its part, is well positioned to get in on the game. In February, the Transportation Department released a final rule laying out expectations for the Nevi system, mandating that new chargers can't be out of order more than 3% of the time on average, and that the chargers accept major credit cards without using an app. They also have to meet a certain minimum charging speed and be manufactured and assembled in the United States. Tritium says it has a fast charging system that meets those requirements announcing the product offering in March. Federal funding started making its way to states last fall, and the charging dollars will likely end up in the hands of multiple charger manufacturers. But, Khalees says Tritium will likely be in pole position. It has enough manufacturing capacity at the Tennessee facility to supply the entire program for all 50 states. That's not daunting to us, says Khalees. We need way more fast chargers than Nevi will build. We're planning on that. That's our market. The Radical Joy of Rachel Cargill by Janelle Ross The moment Rachel Cargill opens her Brooklyn apartment door, I see the signs of relaxed living. There is the time to greet me slowly on a Monday morning. There's the letterboard displaying not an overcrowded schedule or a grocery list, but the affirming words, this too is the living. There is the sunshine streaming in from a balcony where salad greens hang from a pocket plant wall. And there's the soft, brandy-colored leather couch, where we sit and talk over steaming cups of dark roast coffee served Jamaican-style with thick condensed milk. Jamaica ranks among her happiest places. Cargill, 34, is a black woman leading a modern, multi-hyphenate life, improbably filled with an abundance of ease, another of her favorite phrases. Her career as an influencer, speaker, and writer began about six years ago with the Instagram account at Rachel.Cargill. Her posts on grief, self-care, liberation, and the conduct of nice white feminists have earned her 1.6 million followers. And she has over 1 million more following Side accounts like At Rich Auntie Supreme, which celebrates the life choices of women without children and those for her businesses, a bookstore and writing center in Akron, Ohio, an online self-paced learning platform, and a foundation bringing mental health support to black women and girls. Cargill, CEO of the Loveland Group. Her collection of for-profit businesses built her brand on her commitment to racial justice. But what makes her approach and her life particularly remarkable is her insistence that joy and pleasure are as essential as equity and justice in the making of a better world. Racism causes our bodies to be weathered, she says. The repair of that requires being able to sit squarely in your values. You can find more peace when you are spending your time and energy doing the things you want to do, no matter how extraneous they may seem to anyone else. Her debut book, A Renaissance of Our Own, a memoir and manifesto on reimagining, out May 16th, is a collection of lessons and questions to prompt the reader's own life redesign. The book and worldview it illuminates are open to all, Cargill tells me, but it was written first and foremost for black women. Because silencing, shaming, correcting, ignoring, downplaying, degrading, overburdening, and still demanding more from black women, remains the norm. Cargill grew up the youngest in an Ohio family. Her father, a man who never provided steady financial support but showered Cargill with love, died of kidney failure when she was 11. Her mother, whom Cargill describes as industrious and creative, had been disabled by polio as a child. She was fixed on two things, religious salvation and survival. It was she who moved the family to subsidized housing in a nearly all-white, affluent area, hoping to provide Cargill and her two sisters with different opportunities. As a teen, Cargill took note of the stoicism her mother cultivated. In the new book, she describes it as a response to difficult circumstances, the impracticality of falling apart. We're often in deep survival mode, black women, she says, softness was never offered as a tool. Cargill was a star student, and with her mother, a co-parent to her nieces, nephews, and one cousin, an aunt spent time in jail, and she writes that her sisters became victims of addiction whose lives collapsed in dysfunction and pain. Cargill was so convinced that caretaking, crisis, and welfare dependency were her future, she did not initially plan for college. At school, she plastered on a smile. At home... She contemplated jobs that would accommodate parenting but not render her ineligible for affordable housing. She shudders to admit how little she understood then about how race and income can shape one's options. Looking back on it now, I see that I was reaching for whatever good fruit I could find to pick off the blighted little tree I felt I had been assigned in life, she writes. With a cousin's help, Cargill applied to the University of Toledo. But in 2009, before earning a degree, Cargill left school and followed the fellow student she'd married to his Ohio hometown, then into a U.S. Air Force Guard unit. Outside her monthly service obligation, she worked at her mother-in-law's daycare, then became a stay-at-home wife who hosted Bible studies. She tried to convince herself the security that a religious, military black man and his orderly family presented would be enough. It wasn't. After couples counseling with a Christian emphasis, she asked for a divorce in 2012. She also untethered herself from the idea that church was the only path to goodness. These decisions began by simply imagining what else might be possible. Sometimes I sit on a step and I rest there a while, she says. Sometimes I skip a few steps and sometimes I go back. You can't do that when you are on this escalator of expectations from society, religion, family. By the time Donald Trump was inaugurated in 2017, Cargill had spent a few years living in Washington, D.C. and New York. She was dating, exploring her sexuality, and embracing polyamory. She was thinking and reading about gender and feminism. She was savoring the chance to watch Scandal while eating a burrito on the couch alone she'd bought into the ideal of the girl boss, women, who seemed always in possession of copious glitter, cargo rights in a renaissance, and to conflate business success, or aspiring to it, with gains for all women. As thousands converged on Washington and other cities for the Women's March, a photo emerged of Cargill and her friend Dana Sukau, who is white, each raising a fist in protest. People online compared the picture to the iconic 1971 image of white feminist Gloria Steinem and black childcare activist Dorothy Pittman-Hughes, who together spoke about the importance of support for both the women's and black liberation movements. When the 2017 image reached at Afropunk, an Instagram account with mostly black followers, the response was quite different. How, many commenters wondered, could Cargill find communion in that crowd of overwhelmingly white women when nearly half of white women, 47%, had voted for Trump? Her answer? She still isn't sure. She hadn't learned much in school about Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, Anna Julia Cooper, or other black women activists, people also hardly mentioned in the feminist texts she'd read as an adult. Only now she was learning white feminism had a track record of sidelining everyone else. So she educated herself, taking her evolving thoughts to social media. Her honesty about her need to learn and her obligation to bring accountability to her feminist work boosted her profile. Her following grew exponentially, also becoming far more diverse. What she was writing on social media led to speaking engagements, where she was frank about the work that white feminism needs to do on itself and how her loyalties lie with those who have been most excluded and oppressed. That mission led her, eventually to create the Loveland Foundation. The foundation began with an idea Cargill had in 2018 while briefly continuing college at Columbia University. There, she had access to affordable individual therapy for the first time. It helped her heal, and she wanted to improve access for others. To celebrate her birthday in 2018, she launched a GoFundMe and, within months, raised over $250,000. Now an official nonprofit, the Loveland Foundation offers training to therapists of color as well as free mental health care. It provided sixty hundred and two black women and girls with 74,424 hours of free therapy last year. Cargill hopes in the future to offer financial support to therapists and to create policy changes to boost diversity in the field. One major roadblock, The large number of unpaid training hours required to become licensed, which vary from state to state. In 2021, just 19% of the nation's psychology workforce were people of color, and 5% of those were black, per the American Psychological Association. The Sunday before I visited Cargill's home, she and Charlene Kemmler, an experienced philanthropy executive who serves as CEO of the Loveland Foundation, hosted a brunch at a downtown Manhattan restaurant. There, they shared their own experiences with healing with a table of about 20 influencer guests. Kemmler's story, her family staged an intervention because she started therapy after her father's death, set off knowing laughter and similar testimonials. Despite the diversity of their backgrounds and experiences as Black and Afro-Latino women, many around the table expressed that family distrust for mental health care was a common challenge. Cargill has a way of bringing whimsy to the most serious of purposes. On this rainy Sunday, she spoke of revolution while dressed in a sequined caftan. She strives to stay her easeful self at all times, especially as an employer whose behavior can impact others. I don't want to feel continuously at the mercy of the weather, she says. She's speaking metaphorically, the weather of politics, of people's perceptions. I want to be good whatever the weather is, and that takes a self-knowing, she says. That can't be handed to you from anywhere. Not from your parents, not from your religion, not from your job. Joy lives inside you. With reporting by Mariah Espada. Thanks for listening to TIME bringing newsworthy stories to you since 1923. Check out time.com for more award-winning journalism.